Let's pray as we get started. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you want us to hear this morning, that you give us eyes to see your word. And Father, I pray that you would be doing a work in our hearts that would be uh, revealing to us uh, more and more, evermore, uh, the mystery of Christ. And we thank you for your word and for the clarity of the gospel. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, uh, Dave preached on uh, the beginning part of the sentence that we're in. He preached on, on verse 3, and he was talking about, about prayer and the need for prayer, and Paul asking for prayer that the Lord would open doors uh, for, for the word to be proclaimed. And, uh, and, and he, I remember Dave was talking about the difference between being willing and willful. If you were here, you remember that? He was talking about, okay, willingness is, is Lord, whatever you would do, uh, I, whatever, you know, bring me along in that process teach me to, to submit and to yield to you and to, and to follow where you would go. Being willful was saying, you can do whatever you want as long as it's in these particular boundaries, right? And if you get outside of that, I'm not, I'm not interested, but if you stay there. And I thought that was really helpful. I've been thinking about that all week and this idea that, that Paul is praying that the mystery of Christ would be proclaimed and that doors would be open for people to hear that, something that God would have to do in order for his word to be heard. We're gonna continue on with the rest of the thought that Paul is developing there today. And I wanted to zero in just a little bit on, on the way that Paul describes the gospel. And he calls it the mystery of Christ. This is the language that he uses. He doesn't just use it here either. He uses it in other places in Colossians. But he's describing the gospel as the mystery of Christ, which ought to make us ask, what does he mean by mystery? Because mystery can mean a lot of things, right? Well, one thing that we know it can't mean is it can't mean unknowability, and the reason it can't mean unknowability is because in our text today, he asks that people would pray that he would proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly, which is how it ought to be proclaimed. And so if, if he's referring to Christ as being unknowable, then why would you pray that you would proclaim something that is unknowable in a clear way? It can't be done. So what is it that he means when he talks about Mystery. He's talking about something that has been unfolding over the span of centuries, that kind of mystery. Like when you read a mystery book that you have to get to the end to really know who done it, right? That's the kind of mystery that we're talking about. I want to illustrate it. In this bag, there is a mystery, an object in here, and I want to describe it to you. I want to tell you actually the story because what's in here is mine. It's my possession, something that I have, and in fact, it's something that I bet nobody in this room has uh, one of these, and I bet nobody in Nashville has one of these. In fact, I would go so far as to say what I have in this bag is, finding this is probably more of a long shot than winning the lottery. And I'll also tell you this, it's awesome. What's in this bag? It really is. I wanna tell you how I found it. When I was a junior in college, no, a senior in college, I spent my fall semester living in Jerusalem as a student. And there were a bunch of uh, American students and Korean students and students from other places. And we lived on Mount Zion, right outside the walled city of Jerusalem. I was, uh, as Sting sang, a stone's throw from Jerusalem. I lived right outside the city walls. And it was, 
It was amazing. And the way that the, class, the school worked that we went to was it was a four-day school week so that there would be three-day weekends, really three-and-a-half-day weekends, so that students could go on these excursions and go see the land. And most of the weekends were scheduled. You know, most of them were planned. They were trips that they said, this week we're going to Galilee, and next week we're going to the Dead Sea, and, you know, all these things. And so they'd plan these. But, but there were a few when it was just up to us to plan what we wanted. And there were six of us that had sort of formed this bond. It's a very romantic thing to be an American student in a foreign country and to live there. And to not just be on a 10-day tour where we're all wearing matching fluorescent t-shirts, but, but where, where you, you live there, you know, where your shirt says, don't hassle me, I'm local, right? And, um, and so the six of us, we thought, let's just, let's just pick a place at random on the Mediterranean coastline and let's just get in a taxi and pay him whatever it takes and just spend two days, you know, God knows where. And so we gathered around a table, laid out the map. Somebody's a nice straight coastline, so we had a friend kind of running his finger up and down, and we said, stop. And he stopped, and we looked down, and his finger was on the city of Dor, D-O-R. And I remember seeing it. It was written in this old English typeface. And you know, like, you know what I'm talking about, like the calligraphy type of thing. Not every city on the map was written like that, but Dor was, and there were others. And we said, Dor, that's where we're going to go. So we gathered up our supplies. We went to the kitchen. We raided the kitchen at the school. We got all this food with us. We got sleeping bags, pillows, and we were going to just sleep out under the stars on the Mediterranean Sea at this city called Dor, not knowing anything about it. So we take the map, we get a taxi, and we ask the guy who's driving, can you take us to Dor? And he kind of looks at us funny. And he says, yeah, and we're like, what, is it not safe? And he said, well, it's, not, it's not unsafe. And so we hopped in, we paid him the money, and off we went. And we're just driving down the highway. And we reach this point where he kind of stops on the highway and turns onto this sandy road that's kind of more of a, of a cart path than a road. And he drives for two miles and we see the ocean just unfolding before us. The Mediterranean Sea, just beautiful blue. But what we don't see is anything remotely like civilization. And he says, you're here. And it dawns on us that the reason that door was written in Old English is because Old English typeface on the map was to indicate a ruin and not a city. And so it was what used to be the city of door, and now it was nothing. And he said, do you want to stay? And we're like, yeah, we want to stay. And so we got out and we, we went and we started walking around the beach. And it, we hadn't even thought that it's going to take us two miles just to walk back, you know, to, to the highway to hopefully catch a taxi, you know. Um, that wasn't factoring in because it was awesome, you know. We were living the dream. I mean, this was amazing. And so we found this place on the beach and we laid out our sleeping bags. We found what looked to be kind of the remains of an old fishing shed. It was kind of knocked over some planks and stuff like that. We tore that thing apart with our hands and we built this beautiful campfire in the sand. There was not a cloud in the sky. The ocean was lapping up on the shore and it was six 21-year-olds just loving it. And the morning broke I looked over and there were crabs crawling over the sleeping bags of my friends. They weren't scared of us at all. They were just, it was their beach and we were only visiting. 
And some friends said, you know, I'm going to go for a run. And I'm not really a runner, but I was into the moment, right? And I said, I'm going with you. I'll be the guy behind you. And uh, they, they took off running, just kind of jogging down the beach, and I'm jogging down the beach with them. And then I see something in the water. Catches right out of the corner of my eye, just glimmering, something that shouldn't really be there. And I stop, and what I saw, and what I have in this bag just sort of blew my mind in the moment. What I've just done is I've given you a mystery, like the mystery of Christ. And I've stopped just short of the revelation of the mystery of what it is, right? In the Old Testament, for the believer, that would have been similar to their understanding of salvation, that they knew things about it. They knew that God was going to save his people. They knew that all hope was not lost, that God was going to intervene in time and space, that he was going to make things right. They knew that he would do it. They understood the concept of a Messiah or someone who would do this, but they didn't they didn't know exactly. It was a mystery, really, as to what it would look like. Just like this is a mystery to you right now. But the people, of course, had some information. And so they had begun to imagine what it could be, what it could look like. They imagined the mystery revealed, just as you've done that already. And you have a short list of what's in here. I want to show you what is in here. Are you ready? It's in my hand right now. It's exciting. You ready? It's a message in a bottle. An actual message in a bottle. Washed up on a deserted beach on the Mediterranean Sea. It's glass and cork and paper with a string around it. This is what I found. The mystery of Christ is the revelation of what's in the bag. What specifically is salvation going to look like? And Paul wants to make the mystery clear. He wants to reveal it with clarity. He said this is how we ought to speak. We ought to speak in clear terms. Not just I found something wonderful, but here's what I found specifically. Because the story of the gospel, the story of salvation, is a specific story. It's particular. It has character and plot. It has climax. It has, it has conflict. It has resolution. And so it's a particular story. You can plot events on a map. You can name places and dates and times to certain events that happened. It's a specific story. It's not just that God loves you, but it's that he's loved you in a particular way that has overcome a lot of brokenness, all the brokenness. Now, before I go any further, I have to ask you a question. Are you satisfied? <laughs> no, you're not, are you? Well, maybe you will be if you just wait on it a little bit, right? Look, in this text, Paul is praying. He's asking for prayer that the Lord would open doors. And then in verse 5, he does something peculiar. He stops asking for prayer for himself, but he starts to talk to people that are reading his words. 
And he turns his focus on them and he says, you, listen, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the most of every moment. It's a euphemism. Squeeze the life out of every moment that you've, you've got. Let your conversation be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you'd always have an answer to give to whoever's asking. It's the Lord's business to open the ears and open the heart to hear the gospel, but he's a God of means and he uses means to reveal the mystery of Christ. Part of what it means to walk in wisdom is to not walk as a fool with the message of salvation. What does a fool do? He shows you the message in the bottle, but he doesn't tell you what the message says. That's what a fool does. Why? Because a fool thinks that his faith is his own, but he owns it, that it's a personal thing, and that he doesn't owe it to anybody to talk about it which if you think about what the message of the gospel is, you haven't understood the gospel if you keep it to yourself because it is amazing. It is amazing. It's not that God has singled you out and said, you're my favorite. It's that God has some, done something horrible and beautiful that has involved the shedding of blood and radiant glory and empty tombs and a life given for another life, specifically. It's not my property. A fool thinks that she lives the Christian life so she can feel better about herself. That that's the point. A fool thinks they own their faith rather than being owned by it. I want to tell you about a fool I know. It's the fool that didn't open this thing for three months after he found it. And I'm going to tell you why. It all started with the fact that there on that beach in Door, I did not have a bottle opener. <laughs> and I had a prize, right? And I knew that the only way that I could really open this would be to shove that cork inside the bottle and then I would never be able to get it again. And it would ruin my souvenir. And so I put it in my backpack. I put it in this backpack. And I said, I'll just wait till I get back. And then I got back and I showed everybody my message in a bottle and how awesome it was. And they said, what's it say? And I said, I don't know, I haven't read it yet. I have to find a, a bottle opener. And I, I couldn't find a bottle opener. And so it sat on my shelf the entire time I was there in Jerusalem. I packed it in my suitcase and brought it home with me to America, never having looked at what it said. And then when I finally got home, I found a bottle opener. And then I opened it. Are you satisfied with me right now? <laughs> no, because why? Because when I pulled this thing out and I showed it to you and there was a message in a bottle, we entered into an unwritten agreement, didn't we? That if I was going to show you this, then I was going to show you what it says, right? Because we understand something, don't we? This is not just glass and cork and paper and string. This is a message. This is a story. The bottle is worthless. The cork is worthless. The stuff that makes it is worthless. But why this is valuable is because somebody somewhere wrote something. And God, by his providence, guided it to me, and I opened it up, and I found it. And that's a story. 
That's a story of God working. Think about it. What would be written in a bottle like this? What kinds of messages? If you had the opportunity today to write a message in a bottle and to chuck it into the deep blue, knowing that it would make it to someone who could help you, what would you write? I mean, I go through in my mind, you know, it could be just the romantic, the poet, who, who just thinks that human contact is a beautiful thing and the randomness of the tide pulling at the ocean and guiding this, just writing something just to make that kind of touch is enough to inspire him to do it and to throw it in the sea. Or what if it's lovers, you know? They're out there cruising the Mediterranean under Van Gogh's Starry Night, and they're at their little table. You can see it with the linen cloth outside. She's wearing a dress. He's wearing khakis and a shirt that's unbuttoned down to here. And the wind is blowing, and they're looking into each other's eyes. And they say, we love each other. Let's write it down and put it in. Beautiful, right? Maybe that's it. Or maybe their ship has a big hole in it and it's going down fast and this is their last ditch effort for help. Somebody rescue us. And so they write down help, SOS, and they, and, they, and they throw it into the ocean. It could be any of those things, couldn't it, right here? It just could be anything. I didn't look. I didn't look. The gospel is all those things that I just described and more. It is beautiful human connection directed by cosmic forces. It is a love letter. It is the story of peril and the rescue that came. It's the story of Jesus doing all of those things. And it's a story, Paul says, it's a story you have to tell. You have to tell. And you have to do it graciously. Hang on, okay? I will tell you what's in this bottle. But a lot of people struggle with the graciousness part. Let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt, Paul says. Do you see what he's doing? He uses this word outsiders. He means people who are outside the umbrella of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People who haven't, who don't know him. He's saying, tell them. Tell them. And do it, what? In a gracious way. Not in a, I'm in one corner and you're in one corner and we're opposing each other and I'm hoping to win you over to my team. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, do this in a way that is gracious, that is engaging, that is appropriate to the message itself, that it is riveting and that it's heartbreaking and that it's, it's beautiful. This is how we should communicate. And then he says, so that you might know how to answer each person. Which means that if you're a believer in Christ, you have to be okay with people asking you questions, even if they're hard questions. Is there a question somebody could put to you in the form of a question or in the form of a statement that would make you just want to say, I don't even want to be around you anymore? How could you, how could you even go there? I'm just, I can't handle that. A few years ago, a very famous novelist who was known for writing about vampires, only writing about vampires well, made a very public conversion to Christ. 
public confession of, I'm a Christian, Anne Rice, right? You familiar with her? Some of you may be nodding your head because you've only become familiar with her this week because something happened, didn't it? After she professed faith, after she had this conversion experience, publicly said, I'm a Christian, she started to write about her journey of faith. She wrote books about her journey of faith. And there were a lot of Christian fans who loved this. It was just an unexpected joy, you know, that she would, she would have this moment. Well, this past week, on her Facebook page, here's what she wrote. This is some of what she wrote, so there's more, but, but this is some of what she wrote. I quit being a Christian. I'm out. In the name of Christ, I refuse to be anti-gay. I refuse to be anti-feminist. I refuse to be anti-artificial birth control. I refuse to be anti-democrat. I refuse to be anti-secular humanism. I refuse to be anti-science. I refuse to be anti-life. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity and being a Christian. Amen. How are you doing with that? How does that hit you? How do you answer in a way that is gracious? Because make no mistake, as much as that's a statement, that's a lot of questions too, isn't it? Some people will read it and just dismissively point out, well, obviously her understanding of biblical Christianity is misguided and so, you know. Some people will feel like personally betrayed, like, like she switched teams in the middle of the game and she let you down, you know? I struggled with it, just being very candid with you. Here's where my thoughts went immediately. I'm not anti-democrat and I'm not anti-science and I don't know what the problem is with being anti-secular humanism. That's where, that's where my thoughts went at first. I'm just being honest. That's where it went. I didn't like getting lumped into groups. I didn't like that feeling of, well, you just made this big tent and you shoved everybody underneath it that professes to be a Christian. And I don't really like that you did that. What does it look like to read her words and to be gracious? There's all kinds of scenarios that could be the case, right? She never did understand what Christianity was. And the understanding that she did get over the years, the branding of Christianity from people was unpalatable to her for reasons that are probably good, some of them, right? Or maybe she's just in a dark night of the soul. She is struggling. She's got more doubts than she has answers and she doesn't know how she can go on. Maybe this is very, very honest and vulnerable and transparent. I don't know. The point is, I don't know her. Maybe doubt has seized her heart. But it gets me wondering if I was ever, if I ever had a gracious posture toward Anne Rice, if all I ever thought was that Anne Wright's profession of faith was a great thumb in the eye socket of pagan vampire enthusiasts. You know, so good, good. This is a score for our team. That's not the same thing as loving Anne Rice. And if I don't love her, I can't see her questions in her statement. And there are plenty of questions in her statement. Anne Rice is not my enemy and she hasn't betrayed me. And I'm not free to just dismiss her from my prayers or my thoughts because this 
post on Facebook was Anne Rice's message in a bottle, and guess what? It washed up on the shore in front of thousands and thousands of professing Christians. What are we going to say? How are we going to answer? How are we going to respond? Do we beat Anne Rice up in the name of the church? Let me turn it on its ear. Do we get dismissive and beat up the church in the name of Anne Rice? I know this city. I've lived here before. It's easy to be high and lofty and cynical toward the church, bunch of phonies. It's easy to say, you know what I love about Midtown? It's not like all those other churches. As if Midtown is winning something. Guess what? It's the Lord's church. And if our boast is in anything but him, we're making a mistake. The mystery of Christ is the story of the lost and the perishing rescued and saved. And I need this story. I need it as much as Anne Rice or anybody else. It's the story of God to the rescue. It's a particular story. It's the story of how the wages of sin is death and how someone else came and took that debt, my debt, upon himself and died in my place and gave me his life. It's a story that leans into how we're broken, how everything is broken, and how God is putting all that is broken right, how God has responded centuries ago to the pain that you feel now. It's the story of life. And for those who know it, Though we see through a glass darkly, though our knowledge be ever so humble, it is our story to tell. And this life is the life we've been given to tell it right now. And I pray that your speech and my speech would be gracious toward outsiders and seasoned with salt as we seek to reveal the mystery of Christ in a way that is clear, which is how we ought to speak. Amen? The paper in here is, as best as I can tell, it is a uh, ledger from the galley of a ship. It has uh, accounts of, of bottles of wine and, and produce, vegetables on it. And then in what appears to me to be a, a child's handwriting are the following words. Gilly is the best. <laughs> and then, in what appears to be another child's handwriting that is apparently much younger and doesn't really know how to write yet, it says, and so is, and I can't for the life of me make out the name. That's the message in the bottle. But I want to tell you something, and this is how I want to close. The message in the bottle is good news. I think about this, and immediately I'm transported back into being a little boy with my friend Jamie Hines on our dirt road down my street with our little pocket knife cutting our hands and becoming blood brothers. And I'm teleported to this place where I see in my mind the secret clubs that kids form as ways of saying to one another, you're my friend. And I see Gilly and his older brother or friend 
I see them steal the bottle away from their parents' dinner table. And I wonder, was it empty? (laughs) And I wonder, did they have the forethought to remember the cork or did they have to go back and get it? But I see them taking the bottle and the cork and finding this piece of paper and going somewhere to find a secret place to write something substantial, something weighty, something that would count for something. And they think about it. In an effort to come up with something, the older boy grabs the paper and the pen and he writes, Gilly is the best. And I see him explaining to Gilly what's just happened. And I see Gilly trying to wrap his mind around it and take the pen and do his level best to return the praise. And I see them nervous with excitement as they take the bottle as though it's something precious that has been taken. And they shove the cork into the top and they find just the perfect place to chuck it over the railing of the boat into the deep blue and to let it go wherever it would. And I'm reminded in the friendships of children that this world is not nearly as broken as it could be. And that's because God is good. And that's a particular part of the story that I love. The message in the bottle is good news. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your mercy and grace. I thank you for the way that you work in the lives of your people to uh, use us as people who speak truth about the mystery of who you are. God, I ask that you would continue through the course of our lives not only to uh, overwhelm us with the beauty of the mystery of Christ, but that you would also give us the capacity to wrap our minds around the specifics of the mystery of Christ, that we would proclaim that mystery with clarity to any who have questions, and that we would do it in a way that is gracious and seasoned with the kind of salt that says this story is an amazing story. It is the amazing story. Give you thanks for your word that you have not been silent, but you've given it to us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, and for your glory. Amen and amen.